want to first of all thank you who prayed for Karen and I, uh, especially for her uh, in her surgery and in her recovery. Uh, she is doing very well. She is back with us today, uh, doing much, much better. Um, we did have a wonderful vacation. We took a few days to drive down to Florida. We didn't wind up going to Disney as we planned, but we did wind up at the beach. So all was not lost. Amen. We, uh, we sat at New Smyrna Beach and read and let the sand lap up at our toes and watched for baby turtles to hatch out. It was great. So anyway, it was uh, a whole lot of fun, uh, very renewing for us. And, um, and we're glad to be back with you and to open God's Word together with you as well. So uh, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12 today. Uh, we've only got a few weeks left in Hebrews. Uh, this is the last week in Hebrews 12, and then we'll, we'll finish uh, 13 over the next few weeks prior to, uh, prior to our new series on the big questions, and that'll be fun. Um, at the height of the British Empire, just after the British had defeated Napoleon, the Brits took possession of the land of Egypt. And it kicked off a wave of interest in all things Egyptian all across England. And at that time, there was an English romantic poet named Percy Shelley who wrote a meditation describing a famous statue of the Egyptian pharaoh Ramses II that was taken to England from there. The statue once stood 75 feet high, if you can imagine, and it proclaimed the pharaoh's greatness, but in Shelley's day, it was broken in pieces in the desert. And the poem is called Ozymandias, and it goes like this. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command, tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. But nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. And the poet is making the point that whatever glory a, a human kingdom might possess is temporary at best. No one now trembles when contemplating the works of Ramses II. In fact, all that is left of him is some broken monuments, a dried-up mummy in a museum, and a few hieroglyphs that are readable only by academics. And none of the world's mighty look on his works and despair, I'll assure you. Uh, was he really the king of kings? No. Not even close. His kingdom fell. Another empire arose, and Egypt... Uh, came to an end as an empire and an earthquake shattered Ramses' statue. And it has been 3,500 years 
since Egypt was a world power, and the prospects for it returning to that status are not good. And if we exist for another thousand years as a human, as a human race here on this earth, uh, it is very likely that America too, as the British, uh, so also us, uh, our influence will wane one day on the world scene and another will rise to take our place. And the glory that was America will be eclipsed and be known to the history books. That is the way of all human kingdoms and human empires throughout human history. They rise and then they fall. But according to the book of Hebrews chapter 12, that is not the way things will go with the kingdom of God to which we are heirs. Amen? And I want to look at God's word with you so that we can together praise God for our membership in his unshakable kingdom. So beginning of verse 25, the apostle says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Now, this is another one of the warnings. These three verses are another one of the warnings in the book of Hebrews that is intended to awaken faith in those who are not authentic believers, but who are nonetheless part of the church to whom he is writing. See, the apostle knows that what Jesus said in the parable of the wheat and the tares is true. Remember Jesus' parable? He said, he said, uh, he said that the, uh, the seed was sown in the field, and it was good seed that was sown, but later in the night an enemy came and sowed weeds in amongst the wheat. And so, and, and, the, the, and that they grow up side by side, and that the tares look a lot like the wheat until the two are ripe. And then at the end of the age, God will separate the wheat and the tares through his angels. And that which is wheat will be gathered to the king. And that which is tares will be thrown, bundled up and thrown into the fire. But that in the meantime, it is hard to tell who is who. But the writer of Hebrews has been saying all of these warnings with the intention of it having anybody who is not wheat come to authentic faith and be gathered into God's kingdom. Because there are in, just as there were then in that church, today there are in our church, I'm sure, people that look like believers and talk like believers and sound like believers and may nevertheless not be believers. And so this passage has relevance for us too. That we want to be sure that we are on the, on the right side of the king and not the left when the sheep and the goats are divided, when the wheat and the tares are separated. And one of the ways that you start to tell in this life, by the way, who 
who is who, who the genuine believers are, is the onset of persecution. And that is happening in, uh, in, the, in the church uh, that the apostle to the Hebrews is writing. And they're having persecution, and there are some people who are going, I don't know, I don't, I don't think I signed up for this. I mean, they're sending people to prison here. Some of these people are getting flogged. Some of these people are getting killed, and I'm not sure if I'm down for it. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to these folks and saying to them, you better endure through persecution. Your faith needs to endure, because if it doesn't endure, then what you will have revealed is that your faith was fake from the beginning. You will have shown yourself to be a tare. You will have shown yourself to be a goat rather than a sheep. You will have revealed your profession of faith to be false. And, and they're tempted to just go back to Judaism. Just go back to their old life because that is safe. And some of you, as things get difficult, maybe even me, as things get difficult, would be tempted to go back to your old life. Lord, this isn't what I signed up for. This is challenging. This is difficult. Uh, my old life is... I don't remember it as being this bad. Maybe I could just go back to it for a while. And the point being made in this warning and in all of these other warnings is that you do not go back to your old life. Because if you go back, you reveal your heart as having never been truly converted in the first place. And it's also in these three verses, God's righteous and holy and inescapable judgment that is the subject here. They're all part of the apostle's argument that he has been making earlier in chapter 12 that Pastor Stephen explained a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's an argument from the lesser thing to the greater things. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews is, is basically an extended discourse on how Jesus is superior to everything in Judaism. And so that there's nothing in Judaism to go back to. And he is saying to them, you know, if you look at these verses uh, 18 to 24, the lesser thing that he's talking about is the Mosaic Covenant and all of the things that were given at Mount Sinai, which was enacted with God speaking in fire and smoke from the mountain in such a way that they begged that God not speak to them anymore. Do you remember that? That there's fire and smoke and the earth is shaking as God speaks from Sinai, and everybody, including Moses, falls down in fear at the voice of God speaking from the mountain. And they all say with one voice, God, don't talk to us directly anymore. It is too frightening. Tell Moses what you want us to know, and he can tell us. And that was a terrifying thing. But the covenant which comes to us through Jesus Christ is much greater. We will dwell with God, according to these verses, in the new Jerusalem. 
We will worship God with the angels and be part of the assembly of the firstborn. We are not sprinkled with the blood of a lamb. We are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, who is a completely superior mediator of a much greater covenant. Amen? And you'll remember that disregarding the covenants of, of, that was given to, uh, from God to Moses to the people carried the just penalty of death. Because it was treasonous sin. It was rebellion with a high hand against what God had said. In fact, right after the, right after the Mosaic Covenant is established, there is a guy out gathering firewood on the Sabbath, and he is put to death for doing that. He wants to cook lunch, and he is put to death for doing that. Because he deliberately rebelled against what God had told him to do. And, and the apostle's point here is he says, don't, when he says, don't refuse him who is speaking, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them from earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. His point is precisely that. If the death penalty was warranted, under the Mosaic Covenant, which is a much lesser covenant than the one we have, how much greater is a violation of the covenant God established through Jesus Christ? Did anyone escape justice under the Mosaic Covenant? No, they did not. So how do you think we will escape God's justice from the one who is seated at God's right hand? Answer, we won't. God's justice is inescapable. And rejecting the new covenant established through Jesus earns the penalty of eternal death in hell. In verse 26, uh, the, the apostle here quotes the prophet Haggai to tell us that while at Mount Sinai, God shook the earth at his voice. But at the final judgment, both the earth and the heavens will be shaken. And verse 27 explains what that means. It says that this shaking is a way of, is, of explaining that all of the finite things of the world will come to an end. that only what is eternal will remain when God shakes the earth and the heavens. Uh, let me give you some other verses that might clarify that a little more. 2 Peter verse three, um, uh, chapter, I mean, chapter 3, verse 10, uh, the apostle Peter tells us, the earth will melt with, the, with intense heat, and the elements will be burned up, and the heavens will disappear with a roar. Um, Revelation chapter 20 says that earth and sky fled away from the presence of him who was seated on the throne. And, the, and the, the earth gave up the dead that were in it, and the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the dead, small and great, stand before the great white throne of God's judgment. And, and think about that for a second, okay? It doesn't matter, in other words, how long you've been dead. You could be bones in the, in the earth, there'd be very little of you left. 
Or you can even be in the, be in the sea. I think that's the most interesting one. Because what happens if you die at sea? You become fish food in a short period of time. And whatever the sharks don't eat as, you, as your body floats down, you know, you get, if you get all the way to the bottom, there's some stuff that lives on the bottom that will eat you there, right? And yet somehow, God in His power will reassemble your molecules so that you stand before Him in judgment. No one will escape because all things that are finite will be shaken, heavens and earth, and all people will stand before Him that what is eternal may remain. And the books will be opened, Revelation says, and everyone will be judged according to what is written about them in the books, and if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, they will be thrown into the lake of fire which burns forever and ever. And no one who has rejected God's covenant through Jesus Christ will escape. And after that judgment is over, what will remain is what cannot be shaken, the eternal things established by God Himself in His covenant with His people. And you need to be sure... The encouragement of these verses, I mean, it's a big, stern, terrible warning. But the encouragement that is there is that you need to be sure that you are among the people who are entering a kingdom which will not be shaken. This warning is no joke. And God's judgment has only one escape, and that is being covered with the blood of Jesus, His Son, by grace, through faith. That's the only one. And if you reject that, there will not be an escape for you, but you will pay the full penalty of your sins for eternity. And that is the worst possible thing that could ever happen to you or any other human being. Preaching about hell is not any fun, I'll assure you. Okay, It is not any fun to tell people, that God's judgment awaits them unless they turn by, by grace through faith to Jesus Christ. It is not any fun, but it is deeply true. And if you have not fled for refuge to Jesus, the Son of God, you will be in hell. And I don't take any joy in telling you that. In fact, the opposite it brings tears to my eyes to tell you that. But what brings joy to my heart is to tell you the other side of that, the good news, the gospel, which is that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save you and me from that, from the power of sin over us in this life, from the presence of sin over us partially in this life and fully in eternity, and from the penalty of sin for all eternity. Jesus died for that. Not just as a good example, not as a martyr to a cause, but to save you and me from sin and death and hell. Amen? And if you will embrace that, then you will be heirs of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so, as the Scripture here says, verse 25, see to it 
that you do not refuse him who speaks. And they're not talking about me. They're talking about God who speaks from heaven. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Because God's judgment otherwise is inescapable for you. Now, on the other hand, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, then the the promises of the covenant are already yours. And if that's true, you have the privilege and the responsibility to reverently worship your holy God and your King. And that's verses 28 and 29. Let's look at those together. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and therefore let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, I saw an ad one time. It was a big billboard. We were living in Cedar Rapids at the time, and they had a big billboard that said, Come to our church. We have casual worship. Okay. And I knew what they meant, okay? I knew what they meant. What they meant was, you can come to our church in your cargo pants and your flip-flops and your shorts and a you know, rock and roll t-shirt and, no, and a tattoo, and nobody is going to look sideways at you. And is that a good thing? Yes, okay? Let me tell you why. Because as the Scripture says, God looks not on the outward appearance but at the heart. And God is not at all concerned about uh, what you wear. There's no verse in Scripture that says, Thou shalt wear a three-piece suit if thou art a man, and thou shalt wear a dress and pantyhose and heels if you are a woman. Okay? It's not in there. Okay? I've read the whole thing. Trust me on this. All right? It ain't in there. Okay? I mean, that's why we have low standards at our church for a dress code, right? Come uh, other than naked, right? We, we don't care otherwise, just come clothed, okay? Um, because God is not concerned about that, okay? But let me be very, very clear. There is no such thing as casual worship. If by casual we mean flippant or unserious, or just totally bored with the whole prospect as if the, the God of the universe is insufficiently interesting to hold our attention. We do not come to God casually like, hey, what's up? How you doing? <laughs> okay, <laughs> this is the God of the universe. And we do not come to Him flippantly as if, Entering His presence is no big deal. We can come boldly, as Hebrews tells us, but not casually, as if this is not a serious thing that we're doing. And if you found the prospect of of God's judgment, as I just talked about it, terrifying, that isn't a bad thing. It is a fearful thing to fall under God's judgment. And if God treated us as our sins deserve, that is exactly what would happen to us. But instead, verse 28 makes clear to us, that is not our destiny. That is not our destiny. Our destiny is not judgment. 
Instead, because of God's great love for us, because of His amazing grace to us, we are heirs through faith in Christ of what He calls here an unshakable kingdom. In other words, when everything else that is finite disappears, what will be left is the kingdom of God, and we will be heirs of it. Now, I happen to think on some days that it would be really cool to be like a, a Walton heir, you know, a Gates heir, you know, like one of the grandsons of J.P. Morgan, you know, uh, something like that, you know. Um, that, would be, that would be fun, right? And I, I sing along with Tevia from Fiddler on the Roof. Would it somehow interrupt your vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man, right? Uh, <laughs> but... But the reality is, you and I are wealthy beyond imagination because we have an inheritance in God's unshakable kingdom. And when all of the things of this life and this world pass away with a roar, what will be left will be the kingdom of God, and you will be an heir of that. And he says, therefore, that ought to make us, circle this word, grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Amen? I mean, if you knew the vastness of the reward that awaits you in the presence of God, would you not be grateful that God in His grace has brought you into it through the blood of His Son. And that gratitude ought to then lead you to worship God with reverence and awe. With reverence and awe. You know, you know what awe is? It's when your mouth hangs open in amazement. When you go... I mean, you know, I went to the Grand Canyon several years ago with our kids, and it's great. I and mean, it really is. It's amazing. You stand on the edge of this thing, and you look down, and you see that, that canyon floor a mile down there. And you go, man, that's amazing. And then you watch the sunset over the canyon, and the colors all shift and change every night as you look at that. And it is amazing. But you know what it really is? It's a big ditch. I mean, really, okay? I mean, you, know, you, you run enough water down through an area with sandstone in it, and you get a big ditch, okay? And it's impressive. And we stand there, and we go, wow. I mean, we established a park. You know, we built, a, we built ledges out that are all glass that you can walk out if you're brave and look down through the glass like you're out in space, which you are. Um, and, and we're impressed by that. I mean, we, we look at that and we go, wow, that's cool. Or we go to the zoo and we stand next to the lion cage and that, that green-eyed 500-pound animal comes and looks at you like you're chicken fingers. And you go, whoa, you know, that is amazing, right? But these are the things that God made. And we look out at, this, at, the, at the stars or we look at the planets and we see Saturn's rings. And we, we, look at, we, we, look at, uh, we look at Pluto, which if you spend a space probe there, will take 30 years to get there. 
And we look at that and we consider all of the things that God has made and we go, wow. Okay? But God is outside of time, outside of creation. And He is infinitely more powerful than all of the things that He has made. And that God brought you and me into an unshakable kingdom through the blood of His Son. And that ought to cause us to worship God with reverence and awe because as the Scripture says, verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. He is amazing. He is powerful beyond our imagination. And so I'm going to pray and then I'm going to ask our worship team to lead us in singing to Him with reverence and awe. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we are amazed by You. We are amazed that a God of infinite power, of infinite wisdom, of undescribable beauty, of matchless love, of incredible grace, chose to exercise His justice on His own Son that He might exercise His grace on us and bring us into His kingdom. And Father, we are impressed by You. In fact, that's not a strong enough word. We just throw ourselves down at Your feet in reverence and awe and great gratitude that you would choose the likes of us to be your children. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here who as I was speaking about hell had the slightest worry that they might wind up there, that they would turn their heart right now to put their trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died for them and was raised from the dead to give them new life. Father, I pray right now would be the moment of their real conversion. And that you would demonstrate the the reality of their faith through a transformed life that looks different from everything they did before and will receive a rich welcome into your unshakable kingdom. And Father, we give you praise and we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by your Spirit's power. Amen.